Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Thanks for being with us today. You know, it's fascinating that four months, basically, after we voted in November in the 2020 election cycle, and a little bit more recently in the Georgia runoff, stories about how we vote, about voting rights, about uh, efforts that some people believe are voter suppression, are dominating the news here in the Georgia state legislature, uh, today in the U.S. House, at the U.S. Supreme Court, where an important case is being heard on voting rights today, and locally at the Fulton County Grand Jury, where they will begin looking today at whether or not uh, Donald Trump is criminally liable for efforts to overturn the outcome of how voters uh, cast their ballots for Joe Biden back on November 6th. Um, so we're going to talk about all that on the show with our panel today, but, but I really want to start the show uh, by talking about a, a, a great loss. Um, we learned this morning that Vernon Jordan, uh, who was born in Atlanta, worked here in Atlanta, went on to be the president of the National Urban League. He was the executive director of the United Negro College Fund, uh, one of the important civil rights leaders in this country, uh, has passed away. Uh, Vernon Jordan spent some of his career working here in Georgia, and one of the most important cases he was involved with, after he uh, went to college up in northern Indiana and then got a law degree at Howard University, he came back to Atlanta and he worked for the law firm of Donald L. Hollowell, who was himself one of the major civil rights activists uh, in the uh, early 60s. At that firm with Jordan as an active part of the uh, work, sued the University of Georgia for its, what they said were racial discriminatory admissions practices. In 1961, the federal court ordered that uh, two African Americans be admitted to the University of Georgia. The first two, they were Charlene Hunter, now Charlene Hunter-Galt, and Hamilton E. Holmes, and Vernon Jordan, personally escorted Charlene Hunter past a group of angry protesters to the university's admissions office and uh, helped her enter uh, the university. Uh, He uh, was involved in many, many civil rights activities, including being the Georgia field director for the NAACP. He worked on the the voter education project. So Vernon Jordan a major figure in civil rights, who, by the way, went on to become one of Bill Clinton's uh, most uh, uh, trusted advisors when Clinton served in the White House. So we are, we know, we've known for a while that the generation of great civil rights leaders who guided us through difficult times in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, were growing older, and we were losing them as we lost C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, uh, now uh, we've lost uh, Vernon Jordan as well. So I just wanted to make sure we all uh, took a moment to remember the work that he did. 
All right, um, let's move on and uh, introduce the panel and uh, get to talking about what's happening with election legislation. We're joined, as we are on most Tuesdays, by Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Tamar, thank you for being here today. We're always glad to see you. Thanks for having me, Bill. Sure. Uh, coming to us from down in Columbus, Georgia, Chuck Williams, a reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus. Chuck? You are a veteran of the Columbus journalism scene. How, how long did you work in the print business before you went over to the dark side of television news? Hey, it's not the dark side. It's the light right now. Um, and I, was, <laughs> uh, I never thought I would have said that 15 years ago. I was on. I was at the newspaper here in Columbus for almost 30 years, and I have enjoyed every minute of the last two and a half years, or two years and four months. It's been a great experience, and I have a great appreciation for what people that carry cameras and and tell the story have to do. It's a lot, lot greater appreciation than I had uh, before this. Well, we're very glad you could uh, be with us uh, today, Chuck. We're also joined uh, by Dr. Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University. And and I think it's fair to say, Amy, that uh, when we talk about the U.S. Supreme Court in this case that they're going to hear today, uh, you fortunately bring to the show today a deep background in studying the federal courts. And it's one of your areas of expertise and particular interest. Fair enough? Yes. In fact, that's uh, where most of my research has been focused on is the courts and uh, judicial decision making, as well as the selection of federal judges. So, well, okay, a we're glad we're going to have all of that. <laughs> well, we're glad today is one of the days we can talk to you about what's happening with the Supreme Court. And Julianne Thompson is back with us. She's a longtime uh, Georgia Republican strategist, uh, was an active member uh, actively uh, involved in the state Republican Party for many years and continues to uh, watch Republican politics closely. And Julianne, I think to say that you're a Republican strategist is a pretty fair description of, of, of you these days, isn't it? It is. And it's always a pleasure to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're really glad you're here. All right. Let's do so our, uh, yesterday. The uh, state house voted on this broad package of bills that um, really put in place numerous restrictions on absentee voting and then made substantial cutbacks in things like weekend early voting hours, the number of days of early voting. Um, uh, Amelia Brock put together some of this for me. Uh, it will shorten Georgia's runoff election period, strip the Secretary of State of his role as chair of the state election board, prevent county election offices from receiving direct, direct grant funding from nonprofits to help them uh, run their county or local elections, require counties to add more staff, equipment, polling places in large precincts, with long lines uh, of voters. The bill passed 97 to 72, but tomorrow there was furious, furious opposition to this bill and some of the others we'll talk about from Democrats, yes? Absolutely. You saw Stacey Abrams' group um, you know, go full, port, full court press on this seven-figure um, campaign you know, in the press to try and, um, you know, to, to get public opinion against these bills. 
But Democrats have limited leverage here. Um, they're in the minority in both chambers of the legislature, and so there's really nothing they can do numbers-wise to stop these bills. Their only hope is that Republicans will fracture on some of these proposals. And something else that we've seen from them is that there are some other proposals having nothing to do with voting, things like sports betting and gambling, where you know, the, the Republicans do need Democratic support. And for a long while, it was looking like Democrats would give it to them, or at least some of them. And so they're now pulling back their support for that. And so kind of saying, if you're going to move forward with these voting bills, we're not going to move forward with these other priorities that, that y'all have. So um, it remains to, to be seen what's, what's going to happen. There's so many different elections proposals that are out there in front of the legislature, and even Republicans are divided on a lot of these proposals, especially uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. So it'll be interesting to see which ones ultimately end up getting passed. Um, we should also say that the bill would uh, restrict ballot drop boxes and require more ID for absentee voting, uh, as among the other things. I'm, I'm not even uh, listing all of the provisions in this bill. But, Chuck, the issue becomes here that Republicans have the strength they need in terms of numbers to pass this kind of legislation uh, even with very, very limited, if any, Democratic support at all. You know, it's interesting you say that, Bill, because you're right. And I talked to Calvin Smyrie this morning, and Representative Smyrie's from Columbus. He's the dean of the General Assembly. He was the leadoff hitter for the Democrats in their opposition speeches to this yesterday. And Representative Smyrie used the word regression. He moved from suppression and said this was regression. And it was really interesting to hear him talk because he's not using the fiery language that you hear some Democrats use. Calvin is kind of playing statesman in this in this situation because he is a key. What Tam, Tamar was just talking about was the other legislation to getting Democrat votes to pass that. Calvin Smyrie will be a key player in getting those Democrats to help on other stuff. So it was really interesting to talk to Calvin this morning and to understand where he's coming from this. He's not happy. It's clear he's not happy with it. It has dramatic impact on Muskogee County and other metro counties or large counties like ours. So, you know, the Republicans have the votes, but they also are look they also have to look at the smiries and see what the impact of this is going to be. You know, Julianne, it's interesting uh, uh, that Chuck points out that right now Kelvin is playing, Smyre is playing sort of statesman. He's always been uh, one of the leaders in trying to work across the aisle to come to agreements on difficult measures. But in fact, Julianne, I've mentioned this on the show before, when he was on this show before the legislative session started, he was very, very adamant in saying that as far as he was concerned, these voting measures were setting back the cause of voting rights, and he certainly was passionate in the way he uh, talked about it. So, Julianne, I, give us your take on how you see these bills coming together and where they're headed. Well, starting with the Senate bill, um, I'm sure that the Senate put forth this all-encompassing omnibus bill um, because they expect some compromise on certain uh, key aspects of it later on down the road. I would be surprised to see if it passes both chambers as is. Going to the House bill uh, that made it through committee, 
Um, it, that, that will also be interesting to watch and see if it goes through rules and to the floor as is, or if this ends up, um, it's going to end up in conference, obviously. But, it, you know, I, I'm sure that the bill that you see now will not be the final bill, although, you know, there, there's no way to know that for sure. But just history tells you that's not usually the case. Um, you know, one of the more controversial items in the package really across party lines um, has been voting to end the no excuse absentee uh, balloting. And, you know, I, I know that many, this is, this is an extremely important issue to a lot of Republican activists. I know that the Republican Party and activists are pushing really hard for this. Um, but polling does show that nearly half the voters polled across party lines voted either early or absentee. And um, of those, half of Republicans voted, only half of Republicans voted on Election Day. So your traditional reliable Election Day voting among Republicans is changing as more options become available. Um, with regard to, to Sunday voting, I've heard a lot from people on both sides of the aisle as well, not politicos, but just average voters um, that I talk to on a pretty regular basis. And there's been a wide support for the weekend voting, for the Sunday voting, but there's a lot of people that feel that the inconsistencies in locations and days, that really needs to be addressed and fixed. Um, and I think that the last time I was on, I, I said that I believe that drop boxes would remain, but there would be a compromise on location and security measures. And in the bills, that's the case, um, where the ballot drop boxes would be available, but limited to inside early polling locations. So um, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch to see how this bill actually turns out. Well, I do just, Amy, I want to get you in, but I do just want to quickly point out that that uh, broad package of bills that we mentioned at the top did, in fact, pass the whole House uh, yesterday and now is headed to the Senate for uh, consideration. Uh, Amy, uh, weigh in on this, uh, and and then I've got a lot more questions to ask about what's happening here. Um, I think one of the things that is most interesting is that there's a bit of a disconnect between how the elections actually occurred and what was the reality on the ground uh, during this last election cycle and the sort of comments that we're hearing related to these bills. In many ways, right, we, there were issues back in during the primaries, particularly during the June primaries, long lines, et cetera. The state uh, and a lot of the county election boards worked overtime to really address those concerns and resulted in actually an incredibly well-run election, both in November and during the um, runoff elections in January. The level of transparency was actually huge. There were a lot, if not issues. And one of the things that we saw, which lots of people were terribly excited about across right both sides of the aisle, was high numbers of involvement in the election, right? We had record number of people being registered and record people uh, actually turning out to vote. And so there's a bit of a disconnect then between a lot of these bills, which really in some ways seem to want to make it more difficult to go to the polls or are really limiting when people can go, right? If you drastically cut down, for example, the number of days that there are, that means by definition, you'll have longer lines and things like that. And so there's a bit of this sort of question of sort of what's the goal here and also what happens next, 
right? Right now, right, there seems to be a feeling that uh, this will aid um, and potentially um, sort of benefit uh, Republicans and Republican voters and some of these measures, but perhaps it doesn't in the next election cycle, right? And I think that that's sort of the thing that we want to think about, because does it make sense to take away a lot of these things that Georgia, um, to be blunt, has been pointed to nationally as being a leader of one of the few states that has enacted things such as the opt-in voter registration which is one of the requirements in the bill that's being debated uh, in Congress today, that we ex greatly expanded uh, both the absentee and the early voting, the transparency on the counting of elections, that a lot of these take us back. And it's an interesting point because it will actually make it much more difficult to have a well-run election during the next cycle. Tomorrow? You know, perception is reality often. And you know, especially on the Republican side, we've heard for months and months um, coming from former President Trump and a lot of his allies that the system um, is rigged, that it hurts Republicans. And, you know, you saw despite, you know, audits and recounts here in Georgia that showed overall that the system was all right, um, that there wasn't the widespread voter fraud that, that Trump has been talking about and his allies as well. Um, but you see with a lot of Republican voters and now with their elected representatives, you know, who've been told for months and months and months that the system is broken, they're now out there um, trying to change the, the rules. And um, yeah, it might not even matter as what, what Amy is saying that a lot of this stuff, um, you know, what Republicans ended up, uh, you know, Republicans were the one who uh, enacted a lot of these changes years ago. Um, so yeah, this, this might be the, the new law of the land. And as Julianne said, a lot of this could end up changing in the final bill once it does go to conference. Um, I, I do expect to see a lot of these, um, or s many of these changes, um, struck out, um, especially when it, uh, comes to these drop boxes and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, it, it's, it goes to show how much rhetoric at the top can really impact what's ultimately being debated by these legislatures. Chuck? Uh, Bill, what I'd like to point to is one of the places that did do it right in November and then back again on January 5th was Muskogee County. Columbus's election folks got it right. One of the reasons was that the director of elections here, Nancy Boren, took money from these third parties, from Zuckerberg's foundation and from the Schwarzenegger Institute in, at Southern Cal. That money... When it was done, they took about 900000 from those two organizations to help open additional polling places, to help staff those polling places. In one case, they opened the polling place in our convention and trade center and hired laid-off uh, food service workers to help staff those polls. I mean, it was like a lot of domino effects of pretty decent things happening in a pandemic. And that money kept the city of Columbus from having to dig into the budget and fund that or having long lines if you couldn't fund that. And that's one of the things that I think may be lost in some of this. There appear to be unfunded mandates that are going to hit the counties and the cities with this legislation. And I think you're going to hear screaming of a different kind when they start figuring that when the municipal associations and the county the board the county uh, um lobbyists almost election. forgot the names you don't 
you don't see as many lobbyists in the Capitol anymore. But when they start figuring out the cost, the unfunded cost of this, I think you're going to hear a whole different tune. But that, I mean, that's just something I wanted to point out on this. No, I, th- I think that's very important because the burden that uh, some of this legislation puts on counties to expand their staffs without being able to get support from foundations, nonprofit organizations, uh, is going to be an interesting thing to watch develop. Chuck is absolutely right, Tamar, that when it comes down to it, organizations like the uh, Georgia Municipal Association, uh, the uh, uh, Counties Association, they they're down there at the Capitol uh, trying to protect the fiscal interests, among other things, of their member organizations. And this is going to be an issue as they look at some of this legislation, I think. But, tomorrow, let me mention a couple other quick things because I think you said uh, something important. Um, we're looking at uh, the Senate bill has an, uh, proposes an end to no-excuse absentee voting. We know that, in fact, no excuse absentee voting was put in place by uh, Republican Governor Sonny Perdue uh, back in uh, 2005 or 2004, about 2004, 2005. Uh, The other thing that's interesting, Tamar, and we, by the way, that measure does not have the support of either Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan or House Speaker David Ralston. So the chances of that going through are somewhat limited, although you never know with with these guys down there. The other quick thing is um, it was Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, who was very supportive of the notion of automatic voter registration to expand the people who could vote. And in fact, when the Abrams campaign accused him of voter suppression, they at, at the Kemp campaign pointed proudly to the expansion of the voter rolls, partly through automatic voter registration. And now they want to end it. Sure, but the politics surrounding it have changed, right? Donald Trump before wasn't making this a central issue of his campaign, and now all of their voters are talking about it. So how as a Republican legislature can you ignore that? Even um, if an audit does show that, that fraud wasn't a huge problem, or even if it was something that Kemp a few years ago was supporting. Um, you know, you can't cross the president and his voters so many times and not have repercussions at the ballot box. Um, and, and so I think that's what you're seeing a lot of these legislators respond to. Um, you know, the, the ultimate version that might get hashed out in this conference committee might not, you know, it might not end automatic voter registration or, or you know, it might not completely change the way that uh, the uh, drop boxes work for the absentee ballots, but but I still am expecting to see many substantial changes to the election system, and it's going to look far different than what you know the elections that that we saw administered in November. Julianne, are you muted, Julianne? We need your we need to hear you. Can you hear me now? Okay, we can. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had myself muted. Um, I I agree with Tamar. There will be substantial changes uh, to the voting system in Georgia. The motivation is there among uh, Republicans. It is something that that they are very, uh, very concerned about, not just in Georgia, but nationwide. They had a straw poll um, at CPAC, which we were talking about earlier for a second, and uh, the the highest polling uh, goal of Republicans was election reform, election integrity and election reform. So, I mean, this this has a lot of motivation, not just in Georgia, but around the country. But one thing that I, that I think really um, does reach across party lines is, and one thing that I think will definitely remain in the bill, 
uh, whatever bill is ultimately hashed out in conference is increasing um, proof of identity. Uh, but I don't know that that is that a photocopy of an ID is going to remain in there because there have been so many people concerned about identity theft where that is concerned. Uh, it may remain in there as a choice, but I, I certainly believe that um, the the state issued ID or driver's license number being listed or possibly the last four digits of someone's social security number. Um, could also be choices that people have, but I do think that that is definitely something that is going to remain in there. And like I said, I completely agree with Tamar that there are going to be fundamental changes to election law in Georgia. Um, we got to get to a break in a minute, but looming over all of this is, um, we've already really discussed it, the fact that uh, Donald Trump uh, did such a, uh, a proficient job in casting doubt on the integrity of the November election uh, that legislatures across the country are looking, and Tamar pointed this out, to appease their Republican uh, uh, constituents and pass restrictions on voting. Uh, we've talked before about the Brennan Center's uh, uh, reporting on state voting proposals, the Brennan Center now says that there are 253 bills with provisions that restrict voting access in 43 states. Um, all of this in the current sessions of legislatures, and I think it's fair to say, Amy, in many ways, a reaction to the fact that the Republican Party is now in lockstep with President Trump, that the election in 2020 was fraudulent in some ways and needed to be remedied, or, Amy, that they needed to dilute the voters who turned out and supported Joe Biden in the November election. Amy, I'll give you a last word before a break. I think there's evidence of, of both of those. And I mean, Tamar said it, that perception many times becomes reality. There is a strong belief among many people that the elections were wrapped with fraud, that there were lots of issues that people are able to just easily uh, show up and vote multiple times, that absentee ballots, that there's all of these issues. And part of the real concerning thing is that it does not match up with the evidence actually on the ground. Um, and Georgia is a perfect example of that. Um, it was incredibly transparent. We had like three different times the, the ballots were counted, including by hand. Uh, all of the numbers matched up. But yet there is still this very firm belief that, for example, there was vote switching on machines. Now, I don't know where they were switching to or what the numbers were, but we have that coming in. And so I think part of the issue is we need more of the elected officials to say that doesn't match with what's going on. And we need to also keep focused on what is our goal. Do we want people to be able to vote or do we have a different one? All right. Amy Sagerwald, last word in the segment. Got to get to a break. More on Political Rewind in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Quick note before we get back to the panel. Um, we have gotten, I think, um, more mail uh, about our show yesterday with Ty Sedgley, the retired Brigadier General of the United States Army, whose book, Robert E. Lee and Me, is the story of his awakening, his belief as a young boy in the glories of the lost cause, in the heroic Robert E. Lee to today, where he recognizes as he says it, that Robert E. Lee was a traitor to the United States, that the lost cause is a fraud, which is an effort to uh, perpetrate the notion that the, that the Confederate States had a right to secede from the Union, did it for many purposes other than slavery. It was a very powerful show, and we're grateful to all of you. Many of you Southern, natives of the South, as Ty Sedgley is, who said you had gone through the same kind of transformation that he had. Um, it, it, so we're grateful that you wrote to us. If, if you're interested in, if you didn't hear that show, uh, you can subscribe to our the Political Rewind podcast and hear it, or go to uh, gpb.org slash PR and you'll find it there. It's a very powerful uh, show. All right, Tamar Hallerman is with us, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, Julianne Thompson, and Chuck Williams. Tamar, you and I off air had a conversation last week about HB1, which is known as the For the People Act, and which could very well be um, uh, uh, up for debate in the House today, if not during the week. And the For the People Act is a very broad uh, piece of legislation which would look at making it easier to vote in federal elections, end congressional gerrymandering, overhaul federal campaign finance laws, increase safeguards against foreign interference, all that sort of thing. And it's a major statement by the Democrats who are supporting this bill as to how they feel about voter suppression, what they think of as voter suppression, gerrymandering, and the like. But you think the chances of this bill ever becoming law are about 1 in 10,000. Yeah, something like that in the, the current <laughs> Congress. Uh, call me call me cynical. Um, a version of this bill was introduced when I was in Washington before I moved down here. So I wrote about it in January 2019. Democrats had just taken back the House majority after years in the wilderness. This was right after the Georgia governor's race when uh, you know Stacey Abrams came to national prominence and. At the press conference I went to with with you know brand new Speaker Pelosi once again anointed, um, you know she talked about Georgia as as a big inspiration for this bill, um, and the fact that they gave it uh, the bill number HR one should show the the importance that they're placing on it. At the same time, it is a laundry list of all of these proposals that Democrats have been talking about for years in terms of expanding voter access, limiting the reach of special interests. Uh, that because it's so large, there's not a chance that a single Republican, I will go on the record and say, I don't think a single Republican could ever support this bill. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was dead on arrival in the Senate after the House passed it in 2019. Even with a Democratic majority now, they're not going to get the 10 votes needed to break a, a Republican filibuster. And so I would say this is dead until Republicans have, or sorry, until Democrats have 
60 votes in the Senate. I, I'd put okay. a lot of money okay. on it. <laughs> okay, but here's a question for all of you. And, and Julianne, let me start with you, since you are the Republican in our panel today. Um, the bill uh, may very well pass the House with Democratic votes, go to the Senate where it could very easily die, as Tamar believes will happen. Um, but, but Julianne, it's a large statement by Democrats um, that it strikes me is going to serve them well as we move toward, toward the 2022 election cycle. It's, it's a statement that we believe in expanding voting rights, that we believe that gerrymandering is a tool uh, that right now Republicans are using to control uh, Congress. So, I mean, the bill may not pass, but do you worry that this bill will be used against Republicans or, or versions of the bill, things that are within the bill, will be used in uh, campaigns against Republicans in the 2022 elections? Well, well, of course. I mean, bills like this, whether they are sponsored by Democrats or Republicans, are always used against the, the opposing party in the next election. But there's so much to unpack in this particular bill um, and a lot of dress-up languages for initiatives that are so partisan in nature, for instance, giving statehood to Washington, D.C., uh, just an example with regard to the voter purging, the language is so contradictory. While on one hand, it states that a, an official must provide notice to a voter before removing them from voter rolls, it then goes on to say that a voter's failure to, failure to respond to such a notice would not be sufficient reason for, for removal. So that's a complete contradiction, and it's designed to make cleaning up voter rolls next to impossible. It makes no sense, and um, it's, it's widely opposed by every Republican I know, and I would imagine by a handful of Democrats possibly in the Senate as well. I think this is messaging gold for Republicans going into 2022. They're in the minority, so they can say, look, this, you know, this is Democrats trying to push their advantage to change the rules. And you can see the kind of glee that Republicans have just based on the press releases I got it after I got after Nancy Pelosi announced <laughs> that this would go to the House floor. Um, from the RNC, the headline is Democrats' latest power grab. H.R. Uh, 1 is unconstitutional and designed to give them control over U.S. elections for years to come. Um, the floor speech from Mitch McConnell right after. Protecting democracy cannot be a partisan issue. Democrats are trying to recycle failed legislation that would have Washington Democrats grab unprecedented power over how America conducts its elections and how American citizens can engage in political speech. Um, for them, this is a very easy way to draw a line and show, look at how extreme Democrats are changing the rules of the road. This is the exact opposite, um, but, but kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, a lot of similar rhetoric that you're seeing from Democrats who are angry about these elections bills in the Georgia legislature, it's the exact argument that Republicans are making about H.R. 1 on Capitol Hill. Maybe, maybe, but, but Chuck and then Amy... Uh, it also strikes me that whether it's the Georgia bills that, that Republicans are promoting here or H.R. 1 in the U.S. House, uh, I think while Republicans see it as fodder for uh, winning over voters in 2022, I think Democrats, Chuck, say, wait, we won 
the November election for president, largely by attracting more black voters than we've uh, uh, been able to attract in past election cycles. We won suburban women, uh, and, and, and that was helpful to us. And, and so I think the question becomes whether Democrats see that some of these issues will appeal to those same voters that gave them a presidential victory in 2020. I think you're absolutely right, Bill. And I would also say the thing to watch here is the is the majorities in both sides. What's too far? If you go too far, there's going to be pushback from voters. And I think that's the risk the Republicans are running here. And one of the Republic a Republican confided in me, a Republican leader confided in me uh, recently that their concern right now is these election reform bills go too far and they get in the courts, particularly the federal courts, and then all of a sudden there are unintended consequences and they start the, the courts start looking at pieces of it that may not have been on the table. And I think that's the line that 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 both sides are walking on this. If you go too far, the consequences could be enormous. Amy? I think when I think one other major issue is sort of this question of what is the end goal and also what does it mean to say that you support voting, right? Do you see it as a right or a privilege? And I think that sometimes we have heard people using sort of the language of voting as a privilege as opposed to voting as a right and a necessary component of the democratic process. The the other side is that polls really show that while things like supporting election integrity might pull high, when you start to really ask people about particular um, facets of ways, particularly those that might in, right, in reality make it more difficult for someone to be able to exercise their right to vote, all of a sudden the same voters who say that they really want that they support sort of election integrity start to say, wait, 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 hold on. What do you mean that there's not going to be a lot of options for early voting? Wait, um, no, actually having a drop box, which is on my corner, is really useful so that I can be able to go return that. Wait, actually weekend voting is fantastic because I can't take time off work during the week to be able um, to go and vote or miss needed hours, um, that I need that sort of additional flexibility. And so in many ways, I think there is also this disconnect between the way that we actually want to be able to vote and the language about um, kind of securing elections and election integrity that could um, backfire and I think are really coming into play as we as all of these bills are being debated both locally and nationwide. So so tomorrow uh, I've got to get to break. But before I do, is it the question that hovers over all of this, whether it's in the Georgia legislature or Congress, um, and, and that will be the issue in the 2022 election cycle, whether what's happening right now is an effort at making, ensuring, as Amy would describe it, voter integrity um, uh, is preserved, or is it are these Republican efforts at voter suppression? And in the long run, isn't that the biggest question hovering over all of this? I think um, this issue has become so politicized and that the parties are trying to listen to their base, right? Um, 
as I mentioned earlier, Trump has made you know, election fraud such an issue with his voters. Um, and there was a, a poll that the AJC did early in February that showed 38% of Georgia voters, which means the majority of Republicans believe there was widespread fraud. Um, you know, if you're a Republican legislator, you've got to listen to those voters because those are the same voters who are going to elect you. Much as in the same way, if you're a Democrat, you're, um, you're under pressure from your voters to fight anything that could be deemed as voter suppression. Um, I think it's a lot of answering to that. The problem is that the two sides are on such different planets that I think whereas there could have been a reasonable, reasonable compromise 20 years ago, I think the issue is so poisoned, I don't see how the parties can come together on even many basic I, things. I, okay, okay, I've got to extend for a minute. Julianne, I get what Tamar just said. Uh, this is a partisan <laughs> uh, battle. But democracy is larger than partisanship. The right for Americans to vote is bigger than Democrats and Republicans arguing about uh, how those how those uh, uh, elections unfold. And so, if you strip it from that partisan uh, aspect of this, uh, the issue is: Are in fact we going to allow as many people as possible to vote easily, or are we going to try to dilute the votes to favor? Uh, one party or the other. Isn't that the largest question here? Well, it should be, but messaging from both sides are very different. And as Tamar said, Democrats are going to see any type of quote-unquote election integrity changes as Republicans are messaging it as voter suppression. And Republicans are going to see a lot of these, uh, these Democrat policies where they're trying to further open up voting they're going to see those as ripe for voter fraud. We're a divided nation. Um, and I mean, you need to look no further than the 2020 election to see that, yes, Democrats did take the White House and they do now have a majority in the Senate. But there is something to be said about the fact that the Republican Party had larger statewide gains than at any other time in history. We took over state legislatures that we haven't in the past. So we're a divided nation, and I think that what people are trying to tell us is that they don't want a one-party control across the board, uh, that they want people to start coming together and thinking about the voter as opposed to just party or just partisanship. Okay, got to get to the final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. As I said uh, earlier in the show, all roads lead to election uh, uh, stories uh, today. And uh, one of them, Amy Steigerwald, is that the United States Supreme Court will hear the case Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee today in its narrowest sense, Amy. Uh, this case is about, about two Arizona uh, uh, laws uh, that relate to uh, voting there. One, uh, if you vote in the wrong precinct, uh, Arizona now says we throw out your ballot entirely, even if you're voting for, even if it's a statewide office like governor, sorry, you voted in the wrong precinct, that's going to be thrown out. The other is it will prevent people from collecting ballots and turning, absentee ballots and turning them in. That's the narrowest sense of what this is about. But why is this case, Amy, so important to those who are still concerned about the limited protections left in the Voting Rights Act? 
So this is a case that deals with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and the concern here is about how it is that we determine whether or not something has is discriminatory, right? Do you have to show discriminatory intent? For example, somebody standing up and saying, we don't want to let these voters vote. Or is it enough to show a discriminatory impact that it is going to disproportionately affect one group over another? And so what is the reason this really comes to play in Arizona and may not in all other states, right? Some of these laws, it may be that they're fine in some states. In Arizona, part of the issue is, so for example, the, the ballot collection. One of the big issues in Arizona is that the Navajo Nation, m much of it resides in Arizona. Um, in order to get to a post office, right, many people within um, on the reservation do not actually have mailboxes. It does not operate in a sort of traditional way. And there are, the Navajo Nation is it is ginormous. We sort of don't recognize how large it is. It can be up to two hours to be able to get to a post office. And under the law, if your next door neighbor who you are very close with and you are, for example, elderly or don't drive or have some other issue, offers to drive your ballot for you to the post office, that is against the law. And that has real disproportionate effects, especially, again, in um, an incredibly large area where there is um, also high, high levels of poverty. Not a lot of people have cars, et cetera. And so you sort of see that coming in. Similarly, with sort of the other components of where it plays out. And so the real issue here is, though, what does that mean, right? Does it mean that if you can show that these laws uh, have the effect of really burdening one group more so than another, that that's enough to prove uh, concerns under the Voting Rights Act, or do you also have to show that those who passed the law at the time they passed it were attempting to try and dilute it and sort of had overt evidence of that type of discrimination? Okay, okay. And so, Chuck, what, what, what Amy is saying is that the broadest implications of what the court decides eventually is how they write their order on this could strip from the Voting Rights Act, an important, one of the remaining protections, which is allowing people to bring lawsuits uh, uh, against states, uh, against entities that uh, pass laws that discriminate uh, in their election laws based on race. And Chuck, here we know we've already lost in the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance by the Justice Department, and that's had a profound effect here in Georgia as it has across the country. Yeah, and, you know, this comes down to, and I don't have a hard time putting this into words, but this comes down to, to the right or a privilege. Is voting a right or a privilege? And I think many of us consider it a right. I think many of us consider the ability to cast a ballot a right as an American citizen. And are you looking for ways to diminish that right or expand or make sure that right is protected? And, you know, that's the interesting part. And I'm not fully up to date on what's in front of the Supreme Court like Amy is today. But, you know, obviously all of us will be watching that and seeing what the impacts are when it hits down to other states like us. Because, you know, you don't want to do anything that's going 
to take away the right of a voter. Uh, what did Tamara weigh in on this? Sure. This is going to be a huge test of the new Supreme Court after Donald Trump got his three appointees on there, a much more conservative bench than what we had in 2013 when the Supreme Court struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County, Shelby County versus Holder, which is what ended preclearance. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, does this court rule really narrowly? Do they take a really broad approach? Um, and this could have profound implications for Georgia, just like how Amy said, if, if you know, you could stand up and challenge what the state is doing, but also um, some of these individual practices, even if even if the, the court does rule really narrowly, for example, um, you know, ballot harvesting is basically illegal here in Georgia. Your mom or your you know, sibling can, can return your absentee ballot or your son, but you can't have a stranger do it. But one of the proposals in the House bill that just passed um, yesterday disqualifies provisional ballots that are cast in the wrong precinct, one of the very issues that, that's up for debate in the court today. So it'll be very interesting to see how broadly or how narrowly, and either way, I think it will impact voting in Georgia. Uh, you know, Julianne, what's interesting about preclearance is that right now, because Republicans control so many state legislatures um, as they do their redistricting, uh, preclearance uh, and it tends to uh, uh, throwing out preclearance right now tends to favor Republicans who draw district lines uh, that uh, you know enhance their ability to win a given election that discriminate against African Americans by packing them into narrow districts so their votes don't in fact impact Republican districts around them. But uh, the same case can be made when Democrats are in charge and start using practices like reapportionment that uh, favor them, although racial discrimination is, uh, uh, is continues to be illegal, whereas partisan discrimination is not. I think I just added too many things to our conversation, but take it from there. <laughs> Uh, put on your, we need to hear you, Amy. Uh, Julianne, we don't hear you. I'm sorry. I said, I, I think you answered your own question, at least the way that I would have answered it. Um, I agree with, with what you said. Um, but I wanted to, to go back to add one thing, um, what Tamar brought up about ballot harvesting. Um, with regard to the Supreme Court case on the Arizona, the two Arizona uh, laws, I mean, I, I think that there is, when, when you would just ask John Q. Citizen, I think that most people would understand a person accidentally casting a ballot in the wrong precinct. Um, however, I think that there's probably a vast majority of voters that would be against allowing anyone outside a family member or a caregiver to collect a ballot uh, for an individual because they fear that that would open up the floodgates um, for ballot harvesting, which the vast majority of people are against, and voter fraud. Uh, Julianne Thompson, I'm glad you got that in. We are completely out of time, and I appreciate your recognizing that. Julianne Thompson, uh, uh, Amy Steigerwall, Chuck Williams, and, of course, Tamar Hallerman, thank you. By the way, I apologize to all of you out there for uh, throwing all of those issues in at the very end there. I made it much more difficult than it needed to be, but we will talk about all of that in subsequent episodes of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're back here again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, 
wear a mask. See you all tomorrow.